After a blistering launch phase, Disney Plus subscriber growth slowed considerably last quarter. Can it reignite growth in 2022? Meanwhile, Hulu is on its way to becoming a profit engine for Disney. Listen on to find out more. Welcome to this week's edition of Inside the Stream. This is Will Richmond from Video News, and that was Colin Dixon there at the very beginning from Endscreen Media. Hey, Colin, how are you doing this week? I'm doing very well, thank you, Will, and uh, I'm continuing to look forward to our sessions next week at the Brand Suitability Conference for CTV. How's that going? Are we are we almost all together? Uh, we're totally together, and uh, not almost all together. We're totally together. We have 32 speakers across 10 sessions on the two afternoons, and I think that it's actually the highest level group of executives that we've had at a video news event, um, and we've had a lot of very senior executives before, uh, but this, I think, is uniformly the highest group of executive level that we've had speak, and um, you know, it's a really, it's the Connected TV Advertising Brand Suitability Summit. So CTV advertising, of course, is, as we all know, white hot right now. And, um, <laughs> and brand suitability is a topic that some folks may not be that familiar with, but uh, is also really important to advertisers and to agencies and to content providers. So we have a mix of sessions uh, like yours that very much focus on what's happening in the CTV ad business, which itself is really interesting and also very complicated. And then we have some sessions that focus more specifically on brand suitability and brand safety and the related concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DE&I. Um, and so there's a real intersection that's happening. And I'm, I'm personally really excited about the sessions and the speakers, and uh, I think it's going to be a great couple of afternoons. Yeah, me too. Me too. I have some great questions for my panelists, including Natalie Bastian at Tubi, James Brown at Revolt Media, Renee Santaella at uh, Streya, and Sarah Shriver at A&E Networks. You know, one of the things that, of course, we'll delve into there is diversity and inclusivity. That's, uh, That's a big part of the discussion. But... I think it's probably time for us to get on with the podcast in in reels. So, what's your news item? Well, it's it's not unrelated to the Disney the, the Disney results today because it's Fubo TV and Fubo TV is the is the little virtual VPD service that could it it has stuck with the business where others have fallen away. And it continues to grow pretty strongly. So um, it was widely reported that it hit 1 million. When I looked at the results, Will, I have to say, it seemed to me that it actually reached 945,000. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, that, that's what they said. But listen to this. It was a massive gain of 263,000 subscribers in the quarter, which is like more than... Uh, there, were, uh, there were a couple of other... Virgin MVPDs that gained this quarter, Sling did, and uh, and Hulu Live did, but hey, Fubo TV on a much smaller subscriber base gained a lot more subscribers than both of those uh, both of those guys. So that was pretty impressive. The other thing that was also quite impressive was the growth in viewing hours. They said they delivered about two hundred and eighty-four million hours in Q three. 
And when I crunched the numbers, that came out to about 3.8 hours per day per subscriber. So, you know, the service is getting used a lot. Now, they did increase their losses in the quarter, um, but they also launched the Fubo TV Sportsbook, which, fin- which, which did finally launch. And that I think is going to be key in reducing those losses and and heading uh, pushing the service to profitability. So uh, all in all, it seems like everything is in the right direction for Fubo, and uh, they even added some more. They even added eighteen more ABC affiliate stations in the quarter, which probably didn't help that uh, uh, that loss number any. Uh, but anyway, all all around pretty good performance for Fubo this quarter. Yeah, Fubo, uh, you know, one thing that I don't think you mentioned just there, but is a really important strategic priority for them is the whole sports book business. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think they just had some news recently that they've made some progress on that front. I don't recall exactly off the top of my head what it is, but I think Fubo believes that its future profitability lies in the sports betting business, not in the virtual MVPD business. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did mention that, Will, and and I gotta say, I think one of the reasons it did so well was it's very sports focused. They, it, it has most of the RGNs, uh, excuse me, the regional sports networks, RSNs, and well, as we saw, we saw the return to Premier League this 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 last quarter. We saw NFL come back. We saw a lot of the European soccer leagues come back. Um, so I I think that. That really helped drive a massive increase in the number of people that subscribe to the service. So anyway, what did you see? Well, one item that caught my eye this week, Colin, was that um, Viacom CBS and Twitter announced an expansion of their deal. Uh, they've had a deal in place for some time now. This new announcement took it from a domestic to a global deal, and it also now includes several quote-unquote Twitter watch parties for select original releases. And the press release actually did not say that much more than what I just said. Uh, It didn't really add a whole lot of detail to the execution of what's going to happen. But I'll just say from my perspective that even though there isn't a lot of detail, I think directionally this is the right type of deal that Viacom CBS should be pursuing. And actually, I think it's the right direction for Twitter as well. Just from a Viacom CBS standpoint, it's kind of a recognition that, you know, when it comes to releasing original content these days on streaming services, and of course, the massive investment that everyone's making, we just talked, I think, last week about Viacom CBS, and they said publicly in their earnings release that they're probably going to take their original content investment up to $5 billion per year within a couple of years. So, you know, obviously they're investing heavily and to have originals land as widely and with as much buzz around them is obviously essential. And that's what social media is really all about. Um, You know, Twitter obviously is just one of a number of different social platforms. So I don't want to suggest that their work, Viacom CBS's work around building buzz for their originals begins and ends with Twitter watch parties, because I don't think that. But I do believe that it contributes, and Twitter has a huge audience, and 
Um, Twitter is sort of the real-time feed. So when an original is dropping for the first time and fans are watching it for the very first time, I think that's where Twitter is important in the mix. It can help to amplify the storylines as they're being revealed for the very first time. And so I thought it made a lot of sense, and I'm curious to see how the execution actually plays. Yeah, me too, Will. And as you as you say, it is so important to get a maximal buzz around your content if you want to retain your subscribers and if you want to want to get new ones. And they continue to grow uh, their D2C services pretty strongly. So I think that's that's all to the good. Well, I have to say, I, I follow the watch party feature market quite closely in a I'm kind of interested to see what they really mean by a watch party. They don't detail anything about what it means. Um, there's a lot there. You have to synchronize. You, you know, if it's really a watch party, you have to have everybody watching the same thing at the same time so that they can tweet together. And let me tell you, synchronizing all those streams is not a trivial, uh, trivial problem. And I also got to tell you that people want a lot more than just tweeting. They want to see their friends and, and everything when they're actually watching. And very few services can do that. But anyway, I can't wait to see what they do. I'll, I'll probably give it a try and, and see how it works for me. Fair enough. And Colin, in the category of non-trivial problems is how Disney is going to continue to grow Disney+. And that is our really our main story that we want to talk about this week Disney, we're recording actually here on Wednesday afternoon this week, Disney just reported its fiscal Q4 and full year 2021 results this afternoon. We both read the release. We both listened to the earnings call, and you are going to get us started. It's a pretty complicated situation that Disney finds itself in after a period of really rapid growth for Disney+. Plus seems like things are coming back down to earth a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it is, Will, that's for sure. I think I do have the answer on how they're going to continue to deliver the growth, but I'll get to that in just a second. Uh, so let's do the numbers. Uh, the numbers uh, for subscribers say that Disney Plus actually gained just only 2.1 million over the previous quarter. That is the lowest growth that the service has had since its launch uh, and was a, was a bit of a surprise i think people were still expecting strong growth but disney disney continued to launch in a couple of new markets in the quarter um, so that's a bit of a surprise however that said it's still 60 percent up year over year uh, if you look back to 20 2020 Q4, it had 73.7 million and now it has 118.1. So that's a 60% growth, which is, I suppose, acceptable. Well, I might even say pretty good. And ESPN also did actually a little bit better. It grew 15% to 17.1 million from 14.9 million uh, last uh, last quarter. And uh, what's really working there, well there for for ESPN, I think, is exclusive agreements that they've done with people like the NHL and and um, with uh, WWE or is it UFC? I can never remember which one it is that they have. They have one of those, which is working very very well for it and drawing drawing subscribers in. Uh, and they've also actually managed to secure some NFL streaming rights starting in 2023. So. For, for ESPN Plus. So that should be pretty interesting there. That should help 
keep that growing. Hulu uh, also, of course, is in the Disney stable. It grew a little, increased 2% to 39.7 million for the on-demand service. And as I mentioned at the at the start of our discussion with Fubo, they also saw a little bit of an increase in the live subscribers. That's up uh, to 4 million from 3.7. But that, so that's up quarter over quarter, but it's actually down from this time last year, down about 2%. And what I'm putting that overall loss down to is that they bumped the price $10 last December. So that was a big increase. And we've seen, uh, we've seen the users really drop off over the last three quarters. And to, this quarter is the only quarter that I think it's really, really picked back up. So anyway, the, the, they ended with 178.9 million direct-to-consumer subscriptions overall. Now, a quick look at the average revenue paid by each of those subscribers. Disney Plus continues to go in the wrong direction. It's <laughs> ARPU was down a percent to $4.12, and that's down 9% year over year. It was actually higher back in 20Q4. Uh, but ESPN and Hulu both are going in the right direction, uh, at least nominally. Uh, let's see, ESPN is up 6% and to $4.74. That's 4% year over year. And uh, Hulu, well, Hulu's actually down a little bit from last quarter. Hulu on demand is down just a tad to twelve seventy-five, but uh, still doing pretty well overall. And Hulu Live is about $85, $84.90 up from last quarter, $84. So that's that's the impact of that price increase, I think, rolling out. And remember, a lot of people are buying a lot of these stuff stuff in bundles. So it looks like some of the bundling is unwinding and people are subscribing direct. So I, I think that's that's the results. Now, I actually, well, I just had time to process a little bit. So I wanted to give folks a little bit of an idea of who's generating all the revenue in the Disney DTC arsenal. And by my calculations, um, Hulu is the king. It's generating about 35% of the revenue. The Disney direct-to-consumer services are, are earning. Uh, and that's off of about 40 million subscribers overall. Disney Plus, which of course has about 118, is about 28% of revenue, and ESPN is 4% of revenue. Not not a big contribution yet there. Um, so that was the that was the numbers, Will. And I just wanted to answer your question: where they think the growth is coming from, and it's coming from ex- expansion. They say that they have launched now in 60 countries. They're available in 20 languages. And they say in 2022, their intention is to launch in 50 more. They want to be, by 2023, they want to be in 160, 160 countries. So they're about, I think there are about 197 separate countries in the, U, in the world. And so they'll be almost, in almost all of them. Yeah, I mean, so Colin, uh, first of all, let's just get back to... Let's talk about Disney Plus first, and then let's talk about Hulu, because I agree. I think they're both actually very meaningful stories to Disney's overall DTC revenue. So just to focus on Disney Plus for a second, I I think that actually um, Bob Chappick 
and Disney had signaled the market that this current quarter, this Q4, was going to be soft relative to Disney Plus. I don't think anybody was expecting a lights out quarter for them. Uh, but I think coming in at the you know 2.1 million that you said was probably on the low end of what a lot of people believed, and it certainly represents a pretty significant deceleration from what we've seen in the past. And I guess the question that I would pose is, how do they reaccelerate? And it's of course no coincidence of timing that they just announced. You can subscribe to Disney Plus for a dollar ninety nine per month. They have a special promotion going on right now, and no doubt they're hoping that that's going to fire up the holiday quarter for them. So, um, you know, major price promotion. That's obviously not a great road for them from an ARPU perspective, but from a lifetime value perspective, it could be meaningful. It's the first time I think that Disney has promoted such a low price point for Disney Plus. So we'll wait and see how that plays out. I guess there are a couple of other things that are on my mind in terms of where to from here for Disney Plus. The first is what happens on the domestic front as opposed to the international. And as you've just pointed out, they've been you know very clear about saying that a big part of their future growth is going to be international and, you know, specifically related to Hotstar. And we, we sort of know that story. We've talked about that many times. So the question is, what happens domestically to Disney Plus? And I think that there are really two things that, from my standpoint, that play very heavily into what happens domestically. The first is what the release strategy is going to be for brand new content. And, you know, we know that this whole sort of COVID time has scrambled the picture for new releases, for movie new releases in particular. We know the Black Widow story. We know the Chang-Chi story. Um, you know, Chappick was asked on the earnings call about what the release strategy is going to be. And he, I think in so many words, say, said that they want to stay flexible. They want to see how the market develops, what happens with COVID. Um, I don't think that they're quite sure exactly how aggressive they want to be in supporting Disney Plus specifically over theatrical. And that, I think, is totally understandable. But as Chappick said, the reality is that, and they know this, they said it and they know this, that new releases are what drive new subscribers. Library content drive tends to drive retention, while new releases trend tends to support acquisitions. And so if they dial back preference for Disney Plus on the originals, that is going to have some impact on Disney Plus acquisitions. So that's the first thing I guess I would say. And that he also said that they believe that in the second half of fiscal 2022, so that's starting six months from now, give or take, that the releases that they have in the hopper are going to be strong, and he believes strongly support Disney+. Plus. He also specifically called out what they're doing on the kids' side with programming, and in some ways alluded to Disney returning to its kind of glory days of past, where it really owned or drove the children's programming agenda. I don't know that they'll ever get quite back to there, given the fragmentation of kids' programming these days, but that's certainly going to be a key focus of theirs. The other thing 
that I think beyond the content strategy, the release strategy, is what's going to happen on the pricing front. Is is there going to be another Disney Plus price increase sometime in the calendar year 2022? And they didn't speak to that. And nobody knows anything, of course. But we do know that price increases come at a regular interval with all these SVOD services. And if they raise the price, then that's probably going to have an adverse impact on new subscriptions as well and may also impact retention. So there, I think there are some real questions, and that's before even getting to how uh, competitive the SVOD market is domestically, and also, I think, before getting to the ascendance of free ad-supported services, streaming services as well. And that was that's a key topic of your session at next week's CTV Ad Summit. But people only have a finite amount of time. And if they're shifting some of their time to free services, that means they're shifting it away from paid services, which is not good for retention. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, so let's talk about both of those issues. The first one, I think the, real, the, the, the strategy for acquisition is, as you say, centered around originals. Um, I think I heard them say that they, they have budgeted $8 billion to spend on original creation and they're actually increasing that budget, which of course, they're still, even at $8 billion, they're well behind where, what Netflix is spending. Netflix is spending 15 or 17 billion or something crazy like that. Um, so they're definitely going to increase the originals budget. But interestingly, they said on the call wheel that they were really beginning now to focus on local and regional content. And that's a, I think that's a smart play. I think they should be definitely taking Netflix's strategy there, which is thinking lo- uh, uh, producing locally, but thinking globally and that should absolutely be a key focus for them as they as they do that. But but having stuff in local languages and uh, uh, locally produced, um, you know that that's just smart a smart approach to do. And I think that will help a lot with acquisitions. And you know the funny thing is, I saw some data from Hub Re- Entertainment Research this morning, Will, that shows how effective. Uh, those originals, those the, the new things are at attracting and retaining subscribers. So their data, they asked uh, they, they asked a bunch of people about have you ever signed up for a streaming service just to watch one show, and that increased to forty percent of the folks in their survey said that they had done that. But listen to this: of those forty percent, more than three quarters stayed with the service even though they'd watched the original show that they had come to come to watch so this is this is like an extraordinarily effective strategy and one that i i am pretty sure that netflix knows which is one of the reasons why that they invest so heavily i think um so i i think that that's a very effective strategy um oh and i should mention in some respects they don't have any any option in spending more locally because of course in Europe now they have rules for uh, SVOD services that they have to spend 30% on content creation in the, in, in the region that they're operating in, in, in Europe. So that's, that's one of the things they have to do. The second thing on the price increase, I think almost certainly we'll see another price increase, at least in the U S in the next year. I think the price increase of a dollar that they, that they instituted, um, uh, earlier this year, I don't really, I don't think it's impacted the 
impacted the service. I don't think they probably saw a churn increase. Uh, I mean, as you, I, I see you shrugging and we don't know, but um, I, I don't think it probably impacted the service too much. But I, ha- I will say they have to be really careful here. Uh, Bob Chapek in the call, he said that they are a 360 degree service, that they're really providing content in all genres. Their goal is the same as Netflix. They want to be the default service. They want to be in as many people's bundle of services as physically possible. To do that, they need a great deal more breadth and depth of content than they have today in the service. And so until they have that, they're going to have to be very cautious with their price increases because, you know, if they start, if they want $15, the same as Netflix is getting out of most of its subscribers or whatever it is, somewhere in that region, um, people are going to start measuring up, measuring them up. And unless they've got a damn good reason to be there, they're going to leave. So they've got to be really careful there. Also, we I should say, they're having a Disney Plus day on November the 12th. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure how that will percolate into the psyche of, of, of us, the punters. Um, but, you know, it's a focus and, and they'll hopefully they'll have some great offers on that day and some new content that shows up as well. Well, I think your point about the, um, you know, call it the elasticity of demand as they raise their price there has to be some. I mean, it's it's people are not a hundred percent of subscribers are not a hundred percent impervious to a price increase. So there has to be some impact. The question is how much is it? We don't really know. Right. And you know what we do know is that subscriber growth has slowed dramatically. And I don't think it would be fair to pin that on a price increase entirely. But it's in the mix there somewhere. And I think to your point, it has to be something they need to be cautious about when they go to try to put the next one through. So let's wait and see what happens with Disney Plus, a lot of different things. We don't have a ton of time left, Colin, but I think we wanna spend a little time on Hulu also, because as you pointed out, Hulu in some ways is actually as important from a revenue perspective to Disney Plus as, uh, to Disney as Disney Plus is. And so let's just spend a moment talking about Hulu. I'll just say from my part that, you know, when you look at the numbers there, that monthly ARPU for the live TV plus SVOD service of $84.89 per month, that seems pretty impressive to me. Um, yep. That seems like a pretty good, healthy number. Admittedly, as you said before, the number of subscribers has stayed somewhat, you know, kind of range bound for the past 12 months. So it's not like they're really aggressively growing that business. But they bit, they did put through a ten dollar per month price increase. I believe it was almost a year ago. Back to our topic of demand elasticity. So they've basically been able to keep the business flat. Maybe a little bit of growth. But I think what they've also done, which they speak to spoke to in their earnings release and also in their uh, earnings call, was how they're tapping into advertising to really help drive the top line and no doubt drive profitability as well. Um, so it seems like Hulu continues to be well positioned. That's my sort of net takeaway on Hulu right now. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Will. They, they, um, it, it is doing well 
it is continuing to eke out gains even in tough quarters like Q3. Um, and as I say, I think one of the reasons why we saw Live go up was the return of, of NFL in particular for, for that service. That probably helped bump things up a little bit there too. Uh, last quarter, they actually said uh, Hulu became unexpectedly profitable. And while they didn't say explicitly that it was still profitable, they did imply it was. They said that the incre- they, they actually saw an increase in operating loss of the D2C group overall from 0.4 billion to 0.6 billion and they commented the increase in operating loss was due to higher losses at Disney Plus and to a lesser extent ESPN Plus partially offset by improved results at Hulu so that and and they actually as you said they commented in the call about how things things on the advertising side inside of Hulu were improving um, and that, that that was doing extremely well. So I think you're right. I think Hulu is, uh, in some respects, helping offset some of the bad bad results in Disney Plus uh, and to some extent ESPN Plus. Um, but what what we do know is it is still very very early days for Disney Plus. That they are still investing heavily to get that service to where it needs to be to be one of our default services and a default so let's let's be clear they want it as a default service for people around the world not just in the US just the same strategy as Netflix there uh, and that you got to you got to believe that they have a decent shot at doing that with their name and with their brand it's it's such a strong brand um, uh, one of the things that uh, one of the things that I think they are having difficulty with in entire articulating to the market is the impact that um, Disney Plus Star in India is having it's having a very negative effect on the ARPU numbers if I was them I would be calling it out separately <laughs> because it's really distracting the ARPU is much better without it I think they said um, it was $6.24 if you ignore Hotstar and that's much more reasonable right That's uh, that means you know that that's really just the reason it's not 7 is because of the bundles that it's appearing in with with the with Hulu and with um, with uh, ESPN Plus, so so you know it's I think it's very early days for the service. I do think it's going to do pretty well in Q4. Will they've got a shed load of con- uh, content coming into it? Some some really impressive titles like their you know the latest Marvel Shang C or I, I forget what it's called that thing is coming in. They have a new Marvel series uh, starting as well. So they've got plenty of content coming into the service in in the Q4, which I think is really important because that's when they're going to pick up a lot of new subscribers. So, you know, maybe maybe Q3, it's okay for them to have one quiet quarter, but they better deliver in Q4. Yeah, and just staying with Hulu for one last minute, Colin, the, I, I, I like that business for the reasons that you said and also primarily because... Hulu is a scaled ad-supported business, and there are not that many of those types of businesses out there. And we know from other selected data that has been publicly revealed about services, streaming services that are scaled or somewhat scaled, that that business is going gangbuster right now. Gangbusters right now from an advertising perspective, we just... Heard Viacom CBS reiterate that Pluto is going to do a billion a year uh, in ad revenue. That's up from seventy million a few years ago. 
Um, Tubi is doing really well for Fox. The Trade Desk just announced record results. There's evidence all around us of what a scaled streaming ad-supported service can do currently, never mind what it's going to be doing a couple of years from now or three years from now. So I like that Disney owns most of the Hulu service. And I think that business is already doing very well for them, whether it's fully profitable or marginally profitable, who really knows? But I think it's going to be very profitable in the future. Yeah, totally agree. And uh, and also Zumo um, in Fox's results, yep. they, they called out how well Zumo was doing. Um, they don't report, report MAUs anymore, MAUs, but they certainly do report uh, viewing time or viewing streaming hours delivered. And they're, they're seeing really big increases there. And that translates directly into more ad scenes. So, you know, as you say, very, very burgeoning sector. And I guess if people want to know more about that, they should attend the, uh, the Brand Suitability Conference. Absolutely. Well, Colin, why don't we leave it at that for today? We've covered a fair amount of ground. And we'll both be obviously following Disney Plus results and Hulu results pretty closely. Are they going to lure you in with that $1.99 per month offer, Colin, or enough for the Dixon household of SVOD for now? So I have to say I signed up for Disney Plus a little over a year ago when they, no, a little under a year ago when they had a really, really great deal. I think it was like half price or something crazy. And I signed up then. I got to tell you, Will, when it comes up for renewal, I don't know if I'm going to get it. I just don't go in there very much at all. And frankly, the idea of watching Jeff Goldblum, this new Jeff Goldblum thing, doesn't appeal to me at all either. So, you know. Well, the Richmond household exited Disney Plus a long time ago. (laughs) So you'll be following us and you'll be following lots of other people out the door. And of course, Disney Plus wants to get us all back on board. And that's their big challenge, one of their big challenges. That is their big challenge indeed, but uh, I think we're, we're out of time. We are, Colin. Good chatting as always. Thanks, everyone, for listening in on this week's edition of Inside the Stream. And we'll see you all again next week. Inside the Stream is a production of Endscreen Media and Video News. All rights reserved.